0: Turn in your Bibles to the New Testament book of Colossians. Today we begin a brand new series in Colossians. And as you make your way to this New Testament book, if you would stand once more for the reading of God's Word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, and indeed in the whole world, as it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it, And understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Father God, As our Bibles are opened. Would our hearts be receptive to the truths that you would speak to us in your scriptures. Father my words are merely words. This building is merely a old grungy theater. We are simply Skin and bones, if your spirit does not dwell amongst us, if your word does not shape us, and if you do not reveal your glory to us, and the good news of the gospel is made known among us as a people. So through this book and through our study in Colossians, God, we ask that you would shape us. God, we ask that you would change us. And that we would grow more in love with you because you have greatly, sacrificially, unconditionally loved us. And we thank you for that, Lord. So God, give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can take a seat. Well, in our house, uh, we have been uh, collecting uh, instruments over time, and it's been we've been collecting more and more instruments. Even recently, my wife bought this awesome second-hand vintage violin at a deal, and so all these instruments they'll require tuning. And um, she, you know, before she plays the guitar, she will often tune the guitar and then put the guitar down, whether it's a couple hours later or even a couple of days later. Uh, Curran, our middle son, uh, with pretty creative, like observance, noticed, mom, but you just tuned the guitar not too long ago, like why do you have to tune it now? And we basically explained to Curran that um, things go out of tune. You can tune them, you can get it perfectly dialed, but whether it be a couple of days or a week or two weeks or even a couple of hours... Something can go out of tune. It's not natural for things to stay in tune. And those who are musicians, you know this, right? Whether it be wear and tear from the uh, instrument you're playing, whether it be the, uh, the barometric pressure can actually change, the change in the weather and the humidity, those things can actually detune an instrument, make it go flat. Um, those things, those shifts... Whether it be through use, you know that because of those things, those things can cause an otherwise well-tuned instrument to be off. It's natural, not just for instruments to go out of tune, though. It's actually natural, really, for anything to go out of tune. Think of the alignment on your car. You go off-roading, and your car was once aligned, now it's not aligned, and so you got to get your car aligned. It's I'm never in tune when I sing with my voice. Maybe that's not true for some of you, but, but things go out of tune. It's not natural for things to go well. They have to be cared for. They have to have attention drawn to them. They have to be adjusted, and this is true for instruments. It's true for our cars, and it's true for our own lives. We naturally go out of tune. Left on our own, we go out of tune as individuals and people in Christ, but this is also true for the church, the people of God. See, what would happen even in the early church is the gospel would take root. The gospel as it would begin to take root in the lives of people. It would bring about an incredible flourishing where people were growing, where people were serving, where people were giving their lives and laying their lives down for the sake of the gospel. But then over time, the tendency of the churches as in our own lives and churches then and churches today is we begin to go out of tune if we are not careful, if we are not steadfast. It is inevitable we will go out of tune. And so Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, pens this letter, Colossians, to the Christians who live in one of the Roman cities, providences of Colossae. Colossians, the purpose of Paul writing this letter is to reorient the lives of believers back to the gospel. The reason Paul has penned this verse by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is so that we as believers would be retuned to the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things. Because if we're going to be honest with ourselves this morning, and let's be honest, right? You've drifted from Jesus. I've drifted in seasons and times of my life where I did not find Jesus Christ to be supreme and preeminent. I did not find the gospel to be sweet. But it's true. We need to be retuned, and that's the purpose of Colossians, that we would be reoriented back to the gospel. And so today, at the beginning of this sermon series, in the book of Colossians... We have to set some things up before we make our way through this book. And so I just encourage you guys, since we're beginning this book, be reading ahead, be saturating your life in these truths in the book of Colossians. But before we really jump into a lot of these um, truths for this introduction, for the prelude of what will be a a few-month sermon series in the book of Colossians, um, I want us to do some setup uh, so that we can understand what's going on beneath the surface of the book of Colossians so that even as you go ahead and read it on your own, you would know why Paul is uh, addressing this. In fact, that's what we read here in verse 1. Paul, the author, made himself clear. Who is Paul? He is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you. And peace from God our Father. So, as Paul writes this letter to those who are in Colossae, to retune them because there are elements that are outside of them and even things within them that are going to cause them to be detuned from the purity of the gospel. Paul is writing to combat these forces so that the people of God would be aware of them, that you and I would be aware of them. And so if we are going to understand this book of Colossians, just so you know, we need to understand what's going on in the background of Rome. So hopefully for you who enjoy history, uh, there's a brief little bit of a history lesson here before we get in, but but Rome was a big deal. I mean, Rome was a huge deal. Uh, Rome was so large as far as its scale Uh, Around the time of Paul writing this, there were 50,000 miles of road. Think about it, 50,000 miles of road. You guys ever hear the term, all roads lead to Rome? Well, that's why. 50,000 miles of them, and they all led to Rome. In fact, they built these roads and these bridges so well that some of them you can drive on today. The bridges, some of them, are still being used today. It takes us three years and we're not even done to get six miles of highway done between the airport and Kona and it's going to fall apart in a year or two, right? Or it's going to need to be expanded more. Yet here, the Romans were so uh, ingenious in the way that they built their infrastructure. 50,000 miles of road, many of their bridges and roads are used today. Rome had the world's largest army over the greatest expanse of territory this world has ever seen. And if you're a Christian, as long as you live in Rome and were born as a Roman citizen, uh, yeah, life was going to be okay as long as your Christianity didn't get uh, too excited or you didn't live on mission too much, really. Life was okay deceptively, though. Of course, history would later show that even after Paul's writings. And so Paul is encouraging The Christian Colossians in Rome, this great place, to this epic um, empire to belong to as a citizen, be faithful in Jesus. Don't get too comfortable. Be faithful. Being a Roman citizen so far has gone okay for you, better for some than others. But remember, yes, Rome is a big deal, but Jesus is greater. Rome is supreme, and they have emperors, and they have gods that they even worship, and Jesus is a greater God. Remember, Jesus is in everything. That is the case Paul is going to make. And so just remember the vastness of Rome as you read through this, and the, the comforts and the temptations of believers that they would have then. So that's really the first thing, just the, the significance of Rome. And then secondly, uh, Paul is going to bring to clarity uh, To the delusion of what is called syncretism so not only is Rome significant but because of its significance in this day there was something that was happening called syncretism which don't be that word is is, it's it's just a word for the sinking of beliefs where people because of the vastness of Rome were beginning to mesh and blend their beliefs in fact the world was becoming smaller imagine what does 50,000 miles of road do to a culture or to the world, or to that region. It makes it smaller. Think of the internet. Think Facebook. Think Twitter. Think Instagram. What has that done to our world today? Well, the same thing that the Roman roads did back then. The world became smaller, where you'd have goods and services exchanged, trade rela- trades that were made, relationships that were forged that would have never otherwise been forged, cultures and religions colliding and mixing with one another because of the Roman roads. And that's an awesome thing, right? There is something to celebrate in diversity. You are inevitably going to have a melting pot of foods, of families, of cultures, uh, and this is true for even Colossae, just like similar today, right? And there's some things to celebrate there. When when cultures kind of forge and become... um, when they become one and they begin to assimilate and syncretize, there's some good in that. Like, think of food, right? I have one word for you on food of syncretism. Hayashis, okay? <laughs> Just saying. I mean, poke? You got Japanese and Asian fusion mixed with Polynesian-style foods. Come on, like, those are things to celebrate. Or Or malasadas, Portuguese Hawaiian donut. Come on. Those are... Evidences of God's grace that God loves us, even if you're not a believer, that you can enjoy that and be like, man, God has given you taste buds to enjoy. A malasada. Like, that's just, that's awesome. And so these are different things of which syncretism is, is good and there is a good blending of this melting pot. I mean, Hawaii culture is very much a melting pot. Even language, you have tolofa, you have aloha, and then you have hello in one place. You have ethnic diversity even among families. And these are very good things. These are even evidences of grace. But where things get strange though is religion. Where you have this melting pot of diversity, uh, religion is inevitably going to follow. And so people, they didn't oppose these Christians. So as long as they were cool, if their Jesus could be blended in with with some Jewish mysticism, with some other forms of belief, hey, you can have your Jesus. Just keep your Jesus in your corner, okay? As long as you mix him with, with other beliefs. And that's what culture tells us today even, right? Similar. You can have your Jesus as long as you embrace with, you agree with and you assimilate into the melting pot of diversity. And whether it's our culture telling us that we should believe this or whether it's our sinful temptation to blend and mix Jesus in with other religions or other forms of belief, Paul is going to completely upend that idea. More than religion, more than syncretism, more than the significance of Rome, the supremacy of Christ is beyond and above everything, so much so that this Jesus you worship, he is in everything. We'll get there in weeks to come. I don't want to preach and get ahead of myself. But that is the theme of Colossians. The supremacy of Christ stretches beyond our culture, stretches beyond our desires, our lives, and any earthly power. In fact, it's interesting here, even Rome itself would use the cross to flex its power, to demonstrate its power, right? They would use the cross to show their sovereignty, yet in the same time, even though Rome was powerful, what did God use the cross for? To display his sovereign power, but not coercively, where Rome used it as a club to scare people God used it as a means by which he would display his supremacy and just so you know you guys who wins the kingdom of Rome you can visit there today and look at its history because it's history Yet the church the kingdom of God still exists How supreme is Jesus? How preeminent is his kingdom? And how amazing is he as God? Okay, so I'm getting ahead of myself. That's what's going on beneath the surface here as Paul writes this. And so before we get any further, we um, have to have our mind captivated by, we should, at least the people then in Colossae would have been surprised at and would have been, wow, Paul was writing to us, the author Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's one of the most controversial people of all Christianity. Even regenerate believers during the early church were hesitant to hear from Paul, like, dude, that guy, like, is he, like, is he still killing those Christians? I mean, think of the worst person you know. Just think of the worst person you know right now. And imagine they sat right in front of you, and then all of a sudden they respond to the gospel, they get saved, they get baptized. What would that do to you? It might mess with you a little bit. I mean be awesome, but it might mess with you a little bit. The worst person you know, okay, did they kill people? Were they did they oversee the murder of Christians? That's Paul. So imagine this dude is now writing a letter to your church and you're thinking, wait, Paul? This guy wanted nothing to do with Christianity? Now he's saved? I want to love what Paul says here in this verse, in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Who willed Paul to be saved? Who willed Paul to be an apostle? Who willed Paul's salvation? Paul? No! He was on the road to Damascus to kill more Christians. It was by the will of his sovereign father who would knock him off his high horse, whether he was on a horse or not, but he would knock him on his back and blind him with his amazing glory. And Paul would confess Christ as his savior. And that moment, there was no will in Paul. In fact, Acts says in chapter nine, he was breathing out murderous threats. Think about that. He wasn't even saying them. He was breathing them out, murderous threats. That's how angry this guy was. When Jesus' glory comes down, Paul's like, a greater will than my own, whose name is Jesus Christ, has invaded my life, has saved me from my sin, has changed my desires, and has given me a new identity, so much so that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. I should encourage you, because of that worst person that you thought of, or when even you think of the, the, the sins that haunt you, the sins that bother you, No one is so far gone that the grace of God cannot completely, amazingly upend their life and save them. That's what we believe as Christians. You cannot out-sin the blood of Jesus on the cross. It's his grace. So in the church of Colossae, they received this letter from Paul. They picked it up and as they begun to unravel it, There was so much emotion. There was so much history. When they read Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, they knew full well that every statement following this introduction was God going to use this letter to awaken and stir their desires for the gospel afresh. With Timothy by his side around 60 AD, verse 3, Paul says, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Just to continue on this idea of by the will of God, verse 3, Paul says, we always give thanks to God. Notice, as Paul is encouraging them, he is opening this letter. Is he praising them for their faithfulness? Is he praising them for the amazing faith that they've exercised? He doesn't thank them for being so faithful. Who does he thank? He thanks God for their faithfulness. He doesn't thank them for their own hope, for their own salvation. He always thanks God because Paul understands that all of those things are credited to the grace of God. We always thank God. We pray for you. When we think about you, when we think about the work of the gospel, God receives the glory and salvation. According to Paul, it's not us. We don't don't receive glory. Like, does anyone in the kingdom of God ever in the Bible walk with his chin up, his head high, with a prideful swag? Do you ever see that in the Bible? No, you actually see guys getting humbled, getting humiliated. Jacob tried to wrestle with God, and how did that go? He walked with a limp for the rest of his life. Paul, who's writing this, had a thorn in his flesh. We can't, there's, there's, there's no room to brag when we've received unmerited, gra- unmerited favor, that is to say grace. Titus 3, 5 says he saved us. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. But according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now, why is this important, you guys? Okay, what, what does this have to do with you and me today? Christianity isn't about just do it. Christianity is all about it's all done for you in Christ Jesus. Sometimes we turn this thing called Christianity into a checklist of to dos, when in reality, the good news of the gospel is, and Paul is going to make the case here in Colossians, it's all been completely, entirely done for you. In fact, your past sin, your present sin, your future sin, even the ability for us to have faith and to believe on the cross. So, what did Jesus say? It's finished. So it's not about you doing, it's about you belonging and being in Jesus, abiding in him. The work is finished. In fact, even the faith that we have to believe, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, is a gift from God. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not by yourselves, it's not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one would boast. Paul thanks God for them. Because God receives all glory and salvation. And all the Christians in Colossae then and all the Christians today, you live in the promise this morning. That you don't have to do more and try harder. This morning you live with the promise that it is finished. Do you believe that? Guys, it's finished. You're forgiven if you believe in Jesus. If you've been saved by his grace. Paul says we thank God. God gets the glory for the work that he is doing amongst his people. All right, verse four. He says this, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. In case Paul hasn't even visited this church yet. It is heard of the love of all the saints. Because there is no place where it is normative in the New Testament for people to confess Christ as their Savior but to despise his bride. There's no place. Paul heard of the love that they had for all the saints. Saints are you and me. We are saints if we've been bought by the blood of Jesus. And if you've been transformed by the gospel... That gospel transformation, if you want to measure the amount that the gospel is renewing and restoring you, measure it by the love that you have for the saints. How much work is the gospel doing in my life? How well do you love the saints and the people of God? Because you will not find in the scriptures profession of Jesus Christ where people do not love the people of God. In fact, 1 John 4.20 says, If anyone says, I love God, but he hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, who he cannot see. There is an unbreakable distinction between loving Jesus and loving his people, his church. No man can say with spirit-filled confidence, I love Jesus, but I don't like his church or I hate his church. Now, that doesn't mean we love the church, everything the church does. That doesn't mean the church is perfect, okay? But the same grace that was poured out for your forgiveness of sins is the same grace that we should pour out toward one another for the forgiveness of sins because love covers a multitude of sin. Maybe the bride has a big nose, okay? Okay? Maybe the bride has some personal issues. Maybe the bride's hair is messed up, but the bride belongs to Jesus. The church is the bride of Christ. And don't forget, he has clothed his bride as imperfect as she is in his white righteousness. Because Jesus loves his church, if we love Jesus, we should love what Jesus loves and you want to measure the work of the gospel in your soul and in your life, can you agree with what Paul says? Do you have love for all the saints? Like, oh, this is impossible. Yeah, that's why we need the gospel. That's why Jesus lived. That's why Jesus died. That's why Jesus rose again on our behalf for the glory of God, so that we would enter into this and be able to do what we could never do on our own. The Colossians loved one another. In fact, it was so evident that Paul heard about it from Epaphras, if you notice in verse 7, which is interesting. Epaphras, you guys, Epaphras was uh, in Ephesus when Paul was preaching there. He gets saved and gets trained up as a leader, and then he is sent to go back to his home city of Colossae where he goes there and plants a church, and Paul is yet to visit there. Paul says, but I've heard these things from a pastor, and I've heard it from around others of the love that you ha- have for one another. And Paul says, Who is a faithful minister, mind you, in verse 8? I wish I could go in here, guys. I know it's kind of a drive by quick for a lot of these things, but what is a faithful minister? What is a faithful minister? According to Paul, it's a fa- faithful minister is the one who points you to Jesus. A faithful minister is the one who preaches. The gospel to you. Not this lightweight, fluffy Christianity that you can listen on the radio or watch on TV. The good news of Jesus Christ. If your pastor loves you, and I'm saying this about me, or for any other pastor, if you're visiting or you're kind of shopping, if you're going to submit yourself to some form of teaching or leadership, if they're not giving you the gospel from the scriptures and from the word of God, then Paul would not say they are a faithful minister. By his grace through his spirit. Epaphras is a man faithful to the call of God. So, anyways, their love was so real. Their faith was so genuine that it had gone viral. It had been made visible. Now the question then is, how can they have this type of love? How? How? Now wrap it up with this thought. If you go to verse 5, wrap it up with this thought. How do they have this love for all the saints? Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. We should love one another because of the word of truth, which is the gospel, saves us from our selfish love It saves us to love Christ, who so sacrificially loved us. It saves us to love one another. Because the gospel is taking over more and more and more of our hearts. Guys, the gospel is not a one-time event. The gospel is the lifeline upon which we depend for our growth and sanctification and perseverance till the end. Our only hope in life and in death is that we are not our own, but that we belong to God. We can love one another because Paul says here, our hope is in heaven. That's what he says. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Hey, Colossians. Yeah, you're part of Rome, pretty epic empire. Somewhat peaceful right now. You do not belong to the kingdom of this earth. Your hope should be, must be in heaven. And so I just want to ask you, as we begin to wrap this message up, where is? Is your hope. And a lot of us are really like, oh, yeah, it's, you know, God stuff, Jesus, you know, and hopefully it is. But if I can press further, um, Tim Keller in his book, Reason for God, it's, it's a really good book. Um, in this book, talks about this idea of hope. And he says, you can know what you hope by what do you fear of losing most. What are your biggest dreams? What can you not live without? Is it in your own goodness? Is it in our, in our stuff, the things that we've accumulated for ourselves? Is it in the approval of others? Is it in how much pleasure we can have? Hear me, it's not wrong to look forward to the good things in life. But if Paul is going to make the argument that Christ is supreme and preeminent in everything, is Jesus your hope? Our hope must be heavenward. It is sinful. It's not wrong to enjoy or be hopeful for certain things of the earth, but it is sinful to place our hope in anything less than the supremacy of Jesus. Just to... Make this Mother's Day message all the more intense. We must hope for our future in heaven. Because the statistics are pretty grim. 10 out of 10 people die. So are you putting your hope then as a person who is going to die and the things of this earth? Or is the supremacy of Christ your greatest treasure, your greatest hope, your greatest desire, the thing that you live for, the thing that you want, the thing that is transforming and changing your life? You guys, our life is tuned and retuned Back to the gospel when our minds are heavenward and we think about Jesus and eternity with him. Isn't that what Paul says in Colossians two? Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. Christian, your hope is heavenward. where is your hope this morning? May your hope be in Jesus. As a Christian who needs to be retuned to the gospel or as a person who needs to be saved by this good news of the gospel. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we ask that by your will, Your word of truth, the gospel, would take root in our lives in such a way that we, if we do not know you, would believe in you by faith. And also, Lord, that we who are Christians but who've lost sight of the greatest news, our anchor, our lifeline, the thing which continuously saves us, the gospel. May you use Paul's letter and even as we go about our week and as we go on Monday and Tuesday in the weeks and in the months to come, even as we go about those things, would we, as we read Colossians, allow your spirit and let your scriptures and words stir in us a hunger and thirst for the gospel. And As we're praying right now, if you don't know Jesus, by faith, would you come to faith? By faith, would you come to him would you see the grace that has been given to you that you cannot get to heaven by any works of your own righteousness but by the only way by which you can be saved is because of his grace salvation is never something earned for salvation is not achieved salvation is received through the free gift of god in christ jesus spirit of god would you birth in us a hope that is heavenward. May we be a people who set our mind on things above and not on the things of the earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.